I am on cold medicine. I will be distracted today. I'm really sorry. Okay. <clears throat> so a uh, couple things. People ask more and more what's going on around here because you missed the announcements. Uh, if you go to our website, you can sign up for the weekly email update, and it kind of tells you what's going on. So if you'd like to, you can do that. Just Or you can delete it. But if you wanted to, you can sign up and all that kind of stuff. So we do weekly email updates. Uh, baptisms are coming up the first Sunday in September. And if you would like to be baptized, if you're, you're a believer and you haven't been baptized yet, one of the things Jesus said we should do is be baptized in front of you know, church family and, and brothers and sisters. So we would like to be able to do that with you. So sign up in the back. They'll get you some information about that. And I, and I just want to hit one thing. A lot of people have... Uh, this week, since Thursday and Friday, have asked me to make a comment or say something about <clears throat> the Supreme Court on Thursday and Friday. How about I just say this? Uh, we are here to talk about Jesus, okay? If I get a half an hour to 45 minutes to talk to you about anything, we're going to talk about Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about. We, we lift Jesus up uh, in, in all things. The, the heart of the gospel is Jesus. It is not morality and laws by governments. It is Jesus. So he is the one that we lift up. And what is going to happen very soon is that people are going to start trying to make Christianity simply a political position. A lot of times this happens on Facebook with people. Guys, Christianity is not a political position. Christianity is about Jesus. And so we lift up Jesus. And so if you feel all excited and you're on Facebook and you want to make some, just don't, don't. You're not going to change people by making something. If you want to actually have a conversation with people, do what God intends for you to do and actually talk to them and sit down and have a discussion with somebody Uh, because in that way you're actually going to make a connection and people can see your heart and your life. Now, I will tell you at Element, we are a church and we believe the scriptures. We will stick with the scriptures no matter what society says. We follow the scriptures. But, but, okay, we lift up Jesus in all things. That's what we do. Okay, so it's not about, you know, your political position. It is about Jesus first and foremost, because when we lift up Jesus, he will draw all men unto himself, and that's what our goal is to do. Are we good? All right. Welcome to Element. If you're new, you just stepped into it. (laughs) There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, On all the communion tables, there are these sermon notes. Uh, And these sermon notes are available for you to actually color. There's crayons as well there i've listened to the podcast i know i get boring okay so if you get bored just start to color you're gonna be okay you might need two or three (laughs) uh so so go and do that um in those, you'll find some questions and some notes about what we talk about. On the back, there's some announcements. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live in Uversion. You will get the sermon notes and the questions and the verses and all that goes along with today's message as well. So why don't you stand with me, the reading of God's Word. Uh, this is Mark chapter 1, verse 6. And it says, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Yummy. Let's pray. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen Wild Honey. It's not that appealing. So, uh, Father, we thank you so much for being a God who speaks into our hearts and our souls and our lives. And I ask that when we feel disappointed with things around us, we would simply look more and more to you. That we would understand that we lift you up in all things. That we bring you glory with our lives and you bring joy to your people. So teach us to live with full trust and faith in who you are in all things. Amen. Have a seat. Right, so we are starting a new series today called Coloring Book All-Stars, again, hence the decor and all that's going on. Uh, It's kind of a mix between coloring book and comic book, but 
we had to make it work somehow, so, so there you go. Uh, if you were to look at a Bible coloring book, what we're going to talk about is those people, like, like the ones who are the heroes throughout the Bible coloring book. And so uh, if you have kids and they have like a children's Bible, there's probably pictures of these people in your children's Bible that they have, so you can talk with your kids about all this stuff. And not only are we going to talk about these all-stars, we're going to do our best to show you why they're just like the rest of us with all of our flaws and all of our scars because we have a tendency to want to deify people and make legendary status out of people and make them larger than life. But I think when you understand their flaws and their questions, it will help us to learn to trust Jesus just like they did. So today we're going to start off with a bang. We're going to talk about John the Baptizer. Not John the Baptist. He wasn't a Baptist. They weren't around yet. Okay, John the Baptizer. Uh, I asked my GC leader, Donald, who spoke last week on Father's Day, uh, to have his kids draw some stuff. So, so uh, this is space. She drew this right here, uh, colored this right here. Apparently, if you're John the Baptist, you've got to have a big old purple mustache. It's very, very important. That's right. It, it means you're more God. The more purple it is, the more godly you are, apparently. Uh, and then Felicity, uh, his middle child, drew this, or colored this. And, yeah, apparently, she's going to be the very creative type. She does not stain the lines whatsoever. It's funny because their one-and-a-half-year-old looks just like that. So I don't know. She's like three, and this one, I don't know how it works. But uh, so I'm going to take all these gospel accounts. I'm going to mix them together for you, give a picture of John the baptizer. Now, John's life starts off like most of us start. We had a mom and a dad, just like you. Uh, his dad is Zachariah. Zachariah is a priest, so John's a little bit like a pastor's kid. Uh, his mom is Elizabeth, and Zachariah and Elizabeth are very, very old, and they have no children. They're past childbearing years. This makes them very sad because childlessness in a Hebrew culture was seen as disfavor from God. Now today, kids are seen as a burden, so we adopt them out, or we neglect them, or abort them, but in a Hebrew world, there are blessings from God. The more you have, the more blessed you are. Elizabeth and Zechariah are godly people because they want to have babies. In Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, Zechariah's division gets called to serve at the temple. He gets called to go inside to offer incense. So he goes inside alone. The other priests are praying outside, and while he's inside alone, bam, an angel shows up. And the angel says, God is going to answer your prayer. You've been praying for a little boy, and you're going to have a little boy. He's going to be a prophet like Elijah. He'll reconcile families. It's going to be amazing. By the way, call him John. Now, Zechariah doubts. Maybe he gets his hopes up one too many times before now, and so he's like, really? I don't see it really happening. So he questions. And in Luke 1, 18 through 20, the angel says, you're questioning me? I am Gabriel. I'm like the Derek Jeter of angels. Okay? And because you questioned and didn't believe, you're going to be silent for the entire pregnancy. Go to Luke 1, 39 to 45. Elizabeth thanks God for the baby she's going to have and probably also for the quiet husband. <laughs> what a great God he is. Uh, Elizabeth's relative Mary comes to visit her. Mary is also pregnant through a miracle of the Holy Spirit of God. So you have young and old coming together. You have John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb and Jesus in Mary's womb. And when they meet, John jumps in Elizabeth's Womb. Now, John is born a few months before Jesus, and he is raised as the angel instructed in Luke 1, 14 and 15. The text says that no fermented drink touched his lips. And this makes a lot of sense because John is like a complete weirdo. And the, and the worst thing you want is a weirdo with some drinks in him because they just get even more weird. Uh, if you read about John, you can't help but think he'd be ostracized today by our society. You ever drive under an overpass, see like an unkempt, smelly guy that doesn't speak in complete sentences, yet they call themselves a prophet? 
They're not, but that's how a lot of God's prophets looked in the Old Testament, and John was one of those. John's like a mountain man. He lives out in the woods. Uh, when I was growing up, there's a show called Grizzly Adams, and I thought, dear God, there'd be nothing better to live out in the woods with a bear as a pet and Spider-Man powers. That would just, that would just be amazing. Mark 1.6 says John wore camel hair, a big belt. You get the idea that he is one of those guys. I think one day you'll get to heaven, you'll get to meet John, you'll get to see what it's like. But I picture John with like an afro and a crooked smile and wild eyes because his diet is locusts and honey. It is bugs and sweets. You can't raise a kid on bugs and sugar and have them turn out stable. It just, it just doesn't happen. Why is their kid so weird? I don't know. John, you want some more bugs? Okay. You know, that, that kind of thing. So I think John's always got this buzz going from his sugar high. At 30, he comes out of the woods, and he's preaching, funky clothes, barefoot, big belt, bugging his teeth, afro, maybe even a case of the shakes from all the sugar and honey. I don't know. And he starts yelling, repent repent. John is bigger than life. John is not afraid of anybody. There's a fine line between bold and crazy, and John walks that line between bold and crazy. He listens to God, does what God says, doesn't care what anybody thinks. He just does it. In Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, John goes to the political leaders, and he says, stop lording your power over people. He goes to the religious leaders and says, you are self-righteous hypocrites. Knock it off. He goes to the leaders of the military. He says, you're extorting people. Uh, Knock it off. God's mad, and he's coming. So he calls people to own the darkness in their life. He calls them to own it. And when they do, he baptizes them. He baptizes them. Takes them to a river, dunks them in the Jordan River. Here's a picture of the Jordan River. It, there are places that look nicer than that. I just picked the nastiest one I could find, just, just so you, you get the idea. Uh, baptism is a ceremonial cleansing. They have sin in their life, and they need it gone. God has been silent for 400 years. They have been looking for a prophet to come again. After 400 years, who's the prophet that shows up? John. I think God's got a sense of humor. I really do. And it seems that John asked two questions. The first one is, do you want to see God? Do you want to see him? And the second one is, well, then what's your sin? What did you do? And I don't think John lets him off the hook easy because John is a little crazy. I think he's like, so what'd you do? I'm going to dunk you. Is that all? You got it? And in, in and out. I think a lot of people are liberated by John's message because they feel free confessing. Other people, though, didn't like his methodology or how he dealt with things. Uh, today, we would call these suburban people. You know, because they have a counselor, and I pay the counselor, and he's really nice, and he listens to me and says a whole bunch of nice things to me. John doesn't listen at all. John's like, what'd you do, sinner? What's wrong with you? You need Jesus. Repent. He is one of those guys. I mean, I know he works cheap, doesn't charge at all, but, you know, he just is not really nice all the time. So one of the people that didn't like this is this guy named Herod. Uh, Herod's the ruler of the area. Uh, Herod comes from a wealthy, ruling family. Uh, Herod's brother's wife is hot, so Herod took her. And so John starts preaching about Herod. Herod needs to come to the river. Herod needs to confess. And Herod needs to repent. Now, Herod really likes sleeping with this lady. He's not going to give her up, but he's a little scared of John's followers because they're just a little bit unstable. Okay? So the lady that Herod's with really hates John because most women do not like to be called whores in public. And she's one of those, like most women would be, right? She doesn't appreciate it. And so she goes and she pressures, pressures Herod to kill John. You see this in Matthew 14, 6 through 12. Now, John is always in the coloring books. Sometimes he looks different, but he's really a lot of people's favorites. Open to John chapter 1, verse 29. And when I say John chapter 1, that's not written by John the Baptist. That's John the disciple, two different guys. Okay, But John chapter 1, verse 29. 
You see, John, the baptizer, was fearless. He loves God. He loved people, usually very loudly. He loved people. Uh, And he was the first to recognize who Jesus is and proclaim Jesus to the world. John 1, 29 says this. The next day he, that's John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Open to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. Now, hearing all these things and how John proclaims Jesus, you would think that John is nothing like us. That John is full of faith, he has no doubts, he's perfect, but that's not the case. John struggles with disappointment with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Herod arrests John. Uh, Jesus goes on with his public ministry. John sits in prison. He starts to become a little disillusioned. Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3, it says this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, so the disciples say to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, this kind of reminds me a little bit of people who get involved in a church and maybe somebody hurts them or you're involved in a ministry somewhere and somebody hurts you. You become disillusioned with the church as an entire organization or disillusioned with Jesus and you walk away. I will tell you the truth is those who serve Jesus are just as prone to disappointment as anybody else. If the Gospels are any indication, you might even say disappointment is a certainty. When I was putting together this message, I'm reading this book by a guy named John Kostler. It's called The Surprising Grace of Disappointment. And this is what he says. He says, you've got to read the Gospels with all their sharp edges intact. Don't try and round it off and make it all nice. They're sharp edges for a reason, because they're supposed to cut to the heart of who we are. Read the Gospels with all their sharp edges intact. What are they but a record of disappointment with Jesus on a grand scale? So you have John the baptizer. He is in Herod's prison. John sends messengers to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? Should we expect somebody else? Now, the question surprises a lot of people because John is the first to publicly identify Jesus as the one who is to come in John 1.27. Yeah, it was John who told Jesus, I got to first be baptized by you in Matthew 3.14. John sees the Spirit of God come upon Jesus at his baptism. He hears God's voice from heaven saying, Matthew 3.17, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. If anyone knew the answer to the question, Are you the one who was to come? It should have been John. It should have been John. So people say, well, maybe the darkness of Herod's prison, it it dimmed John's confidence in Jesus a little bit, so he starts to question. Personally, I think that seems unlikely because because John is already used to a life of hardship. You know, he's like a Grizzly Adams dude, lives out in the woods, eats bugs and honey. That's pretty depressing right right there. You know, I think think that uh, a prison cell really couldn't break John's spirit in that way. You know, so I, John's probably not surprised to find himself. He's poking Herod in the eye all the time. And if you read the scriptures, you know that nine times out of ten, a prophet's ending is a really bad one. I think John's question is the kind of question that my wife likes to ask me. Not, are you the one? Because my wife has never said, are you the one? I am Neo. I am, no, there's that. The, the kind of question my, life, my wife likes to ask me is, is there a reason you left your dirty dishes in the sink? Nah. Is there a reason you left your, your socks on the floor? Uh, it's like if you go to Home Depot and you look for someone to help you, there's like never anybody around to find. And you like search and search and finally like one guy's hiding behind some boxes in the back so nobody talks to him. He's got an orange shirt to Home Depot and you go, hey, do you work here? Like you know the answer to the question. So it's only a question in the strictest sense of the term of question. But what's really going on there? What's happening is you're trying to get these people to understand that you have a little bit of displeasure. You want something to be done about this. Your questions are not intended to solicit information because the answer is already implied in the question. 
We want other people to know that we're a little bit irritated. More often, the question is simply there to kind of provoke a response. And before you think that I'm saying my wife is ungodly, she's not, okay, she's totally godly, and she's right. I did leave my dishes in the sink, and I did leave my socks on the floor all the time, all the time. Here's a funny story. Um, <laughs> when my wife and I were married for six months, I kept, she ironed my shirts, and I'd throw them on the floor. And she said to me, after we were married six months, she goes, she goes, if I iron your shirts one more time, you throw them on the floor, I am never ironing your clothes again. I put them on the floor. It has been 23 years. She has not ironed my clothes since. <laughs> mm. She makes a decision, and she follows through. Right? Okay, so anyway, anyway. But the, the Bible is full of the, those kind of questions. God loves those kind of questions, too. He asks those questions. In Genesis 3, God comes to man after the fall, and he says, where are you? God knows where the man is. He wants the man to realize, yeah, where am I? What am I doing? God says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God knew they ate from the tree. He wants man to understand what they did. Jesus says to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Jesus knows who the people say that he is. I mean, we are prone to ask questions like that of God. Abraham, in front of Sodom and Gomorrah, says to God, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Of course God will do what is right. The psalm writer says, how long, O Lord, how long? John the Baptist says, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? It's the same question. See, usually like John, we ask God these questions because we're trying to make a point with God. We want God to see the inconsistency from our perspective of his position. We want God to agree with us. We're passive-aggressively trying to provoke him into action. And these are the kind of questions that John always asked. In Luke 3, 7, he says to the religious leaders, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The religious leaders know who warned them. In Matthew three fourteen, he says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Again, Matthew eleven three. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. When John asked these questions of Jesus, it's probably his aggressive way of saying to Jesus, of nagging Jesus, Jesus, I think you've forgotten the mission. I think you've forgotten the mission. You've forgotten yourself. John's question signals the disappointment he felt about the report he received of Jesus' ministry. And what was that? Jesus is going around and healing people. He's not just sticking with the people of Israel. He actually a couple times goes to people who are not even from Israel and reaches them. He talks to Samaritan women. What's going on with that? Jesus with this Jesus guy. And so, so John has this expectation of Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, verse 7, when John talks to the religious leaders, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In verse 9, he says, the axe is at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John's thinking is that Jesus has come to gather the metaphorical grain, the good people, and to burn up the chaff, the bad people, with unquenchable fire. But instead, John sees Jesus roaming the hills, preaching the gospel, healing the sick. John is a guy raised on bugs and sugar, right? He's just a little, he is hellfire and brimstone. He is, the axe is at the root of the tree. Hell is hot forever is a long time, and you're going to be there. That's John. That's John, right? And that's not how Jesus preaches. This is so at odds with John's understanding of what the Messiah would do that he can't help but question. And be careful to understand me in this. It's not, this, this is disappointment. It's not doubt. 
It's disappointment that lies behind John's question. See, failed expectations lie at the heart of every disappointment. Whether these are our friendships or our marriages or disappointment with God or disappointment with the Supreme Court of the United States, we expect one thing, we get something else instead. It's like you expect pie and you get cake. You expect cookies and you get scones. You expect donuts and God forbid you get bagels. You ever bite into a bagel thing and it was a donut? Oh my goodness. You expect dogs and you get cats. My wife's working today. She's not here. You expect a refund from the IRS and instead you actually owe money. Disappointments are a common experience in our lives. And you would think we'd be used to them, but, but we're not. And things are totally different when it comes to God. We expect our own perceived better treatment from God. And, and we know people are going to let us down. And, and I don't know why we're always so surprised what people do. People always let us down. I, I, was, I was talking to this, to this young guy who's got this girlfriend, and he, and he wrote this letter to him, and it said, You're my world. And I said, Do you know how hard it is for a person to carry the world on their shoulders? Because people are going to let you down. People are not God. You cannot lay everything at the feet of somebody else. They will disappoint you. And yet, we somehow come to God and we have all these expectations we lay on God. And I will tell you, God doesn't let you down. God doesn't, but he does things in his own way. Many people know nothing about theology, but they know in some sense, well, God's supposed to bless me. And I'll tell you, God does bless you, but usually not in the way that you think. Sometimes even good theology leads to bad practice because it causes people to confuse God's reliability, and God is always reliable with predictability, and God is never predictable. We think that God's mind and our mind are the same, so we set goals for God. We know what we want, and we put that into the mouth of God. Our own desires govern our expectation. I was talking to a guy recently who said, God's calling me to divorce my wife, and I go, I don't think so. I don't think that's how that works. Uh, talking to, I, I meet couples all the time, want to come and talk to me, and they're shacking up. Well, God told us we love each other, so it's okay for us. I don't think so. I think you're putting your own expectations into God's mouths. Now, sometimes, you know, the goals we set actually turn out to be in alignment with, with God's will, and things happen great, and it's wonderful, and we're greatly encouraged. But when that happens, we're so encouraged, we start to set a lot more goals for God on, on top of that. And sooner or later, usually sooner, what God does is so at odds with our expectation, we don't know what to do and what to think. Like, sometimes we pray for healing, and someone gets sicker. Maybe someone even dies. Uh, some job that seems so perfect for us maybe goes to somebody else. Maybe you start reading the scriptures and it's like, oh, I'm really growing now. I'm really getting to, to know Jesus. So you take your Bible to work and start reading that work and stop doing your job and you get fired because you're not working. Like, God, what happened? You stopped doing your job. Dummy. <laughs> Seriously. Sometimes like, oh, oh, that person, that's the perfect life partner for me. And that person doesn't feel the same way that, that you do. See, our problem is not that we have set the bar so high that we must come to terms with God not being able to reach our expectation. It's usually that we have set our expectations so low and that God is growing us past that into the people he intends for us to be. Kostler says this, he says, It's not that we misread the signals. What really bothers us is that we have misread the sender. We are haunted by the fact that God hasn't done what we know in our hearts that he should have done. How about this? When I was in high school, I became a Christian. Okay? I prayed to God that my girlfriend at the time would be my, be my wife one day. Her name was Jennifer. My wife's name is Marianne. Jennifer did not change her name. Okay? Okay? I thank God every day I look and I see my wife, that it's not Jennifer. She doesn't go to church here, so that's okay. I can say this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> she might listen to the podcast. What? You know, anyway. 
I thank God that his plan was different from mine. I remember the day that God clearly said to me that I wasn't supposed to date her. And in that moment, I did not doubt God's existence. What I did doubt was his judgment. I cannot understand how he could get it so wrong when I knew I was so right. And yet God was and is always so right. Now, some disappointments are dumb and some are serious. John's disappointment was the serious kind. It's a type of disappointment like, I, like Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1.3. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? He says this to God. It's when we think oppression and evil are around us and God isn't doing anything about it and he should do something about it. Like when we say, well, what good is, is the gospel if it doesn't do anything for John who was in Herod's prison who's going to get beheaded really soon? Other people have questions about issues about the possibility that God allows anybody to go to a place called hell. Many Christians, especially younger Christians, are not sure hell is consistent with the God of mercy and the God of grace. Like how can a God who so loved the world watch his creatures suffer for eternity? I mean, if God wanted to teach sinners a lesson, couldn't he think of a better way rather than throwing them into like a burning pit of sulfur forever? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Actually, stay at Matthew chapter 11. See, what happened is people get frustrated with God when God leaves the guilty unpunished. But they also get frustrated with God that he would condemn anyone. And so we have both these sides. And we don't know what to do. Jesus describes people like this right after John's messengers leave. This is what he says in Matthew eleven sixteen. He says, but what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, well, he is a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What Jesus does is he condemns John's generation and ours with these words. It's, it's like our ambivalence. What do we really want from God? Do we want justice or do we want mercy? The beauty is, in the person of Christ, we get both. We get all of God's wrath at sin poured out upon him. He takes all of the justice that should have been ours. And he gives us mercy and grace. This is why our faith is in him. Our lives are surrendered to him. But today it seems like we want justice without judgment and mercy without justice. And this is a trouble with John's question and many times the same problem with our questions. Because when we cry out for justice, we usually want justice for everybody else and not ourselves. We want mercy. We want mercy. I mean, we don't really want justice, not in the divine sense. Kosler writes this, he says, If a blameless and upright man like Job, someone who feared God and shunned evil, withered under the faintest breath of God's justice, what makes us think that we could survive? God's justice is a furnace. We could not endure it in its unmitigated form any more than we could bear to walk on the sun. Amazing words. When we cry out for justice like John, we really don't even know what we're asking for. Kosler says this, This could be that we know that hell is not our native country, but neither are we natives to heaven. This condition of misunderstanding God makes us just like the Jews in Jesus' day. They didn't understand a gospel with edges to it, a gospel that cuts deep into our hearts, that separates joints and marrow, that gets way deep inside of us. See, today, we want a gospel that is all comfort and no threat. Just like the Jews in Jesus' day wanted a gospel that was all threat to everybody else and only comfort to Israel. And this is why Jesus says, you pray for the kingdom of God, but you also pray for mercy. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus disappoints. Jesus disappoints everybody because we all have agendas and Jesus refuses to do all of our agendas. 
Jesus disappoints the people in his own hometown because he didn't do miracles, so they want to throw him off a cliff. There are cities Jesus did miracles in, but he still didn't follow their agenda, and so they want to kill him and get rid of him. Jesus was a disappointment to friends. He's a disappointment to enemies. He doesn't just disappoint John. He disappoints us as well because we don't have the capacity to understand all that God is doing. Are you still in Matthew chapter 11? you still there? Hopefully. Okay. Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. So John has his disciples ask the question, Are you the one? Should we expect another? This is Jesus' answer. Matthew 11, verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now we read that, and we go, what kind of answer is that? That makes no sense whatsoever. And if you ever read an answer Jesus gives, you're like, that makes no sense. It means that we missed something, okay? It's not that Jesus didn't give a good answer. It means that we missed something. And this is true, that our disappointment is usually a problem with perception. What is most striking about Jesus' answer to John is that he doesn't give him any new information. He says, John, you already know what I'm doing. You see all these things. So how does Jesus' answer help? Well, what Jesus does is he quotes Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, about God's Messiah coming and what the Messiah would do. John would have known the reference. In the context of Isaiah, John would have understand how this struck home, how it went deep into John's theology, and how it was just a little bit messed up as it kind of should for us when you read it. Uh, Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4, these are the verses right before what Jesus quotes. It says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. What is God's vengeance on? Sin. It's on what destroys us. See, that's... Jesus' answer to John, in effect, is go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. That your God has come. He has come with a vengeance. And the blind receive sight. And the lame walk. And those of leprosy are cured. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And most important of all, the gospel is preached to the poor. John, your God has come to save you. To save you. See, John the Baptist, he is not a superhero. He's not. He's a lot like us in the sense that we are disappointed with Jesus because we don't really see what he's doing. And because we have our own agendas that we hold to all the time, a lot of times we don't care what Jesus is doing. We just want him to stop what he's doing and do what we want him to do. And it turns out in our lives we have been laboring under a major misunderstanding. See, Jesus came for us, but that does not mean that Jesus came to please us. Jesus came for us, but that does not mean that Jesus answers to us. Jesus came for us, but he will not subject himself to our agenda, no matter how good we think it might be. And I'm not saying the solution to your problem of disappointment is simply suck it up and tough it out. It's just the opposite, because Jesus' words were words of hope for John. I mean, words of blessing, when when Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Other translations say, who does not fall away on account of me. These are the last words that John will hear Jesus ever say. Those words right there. In the face of disappointment, we usually want an explanation. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Because we naively think that an explanation is going to make us feel better. Has it ever occurred to us that maybe it would do just the opposite? And make us feel even worse? I mean, in the book of John, Jesus heals this guy born from, blind from birth. And the, and the disciples say, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? You know, what, you know what Jesus says? For God's glory. Oh, make you feel better? I, I don't know if it actually would. 
See, what Jesus offers is something so much better than an explanation. What Jesus offers is himself. That's what he offers us, and that is the heart of the gospel. Jesus offers us mercy and grace and hope, all found in his person. That's what we are offered. And when it comes to disappointment, there is no other remedy than Jesus. The longer you hold the disappointment and not realizing it's Jesus holding you, disappointment will wrap itself around your heart. The tighter you hold the disappointment, the tighter it will grip you. The only way to free yourself from it is to simply begin to trust yourself into Christ's more than capable arms. And I will tell you, Jesus seems to disappoint everyone in this context at some point, except for one. In Matthew three sixteen and 17, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The reason, the reason we trust Jesus, because God the Father trusted Jesus. God the Father testified to Jesus' purpose. Jesus is the one who is able to please the Father. And Jesus then bestows that. He gives that to us, that favor, as a gift of grace. So look at John the baptizer. What did John do that was so great? He lived out in the woods, came out as a freak, yelled at people, got them wet, eventually got his head cut off. You go to certain places in the world today, you can do that too. Okay, <laughs> That could happen to you. So, so what's your thinking point for the week? My thinking point is, what made John so great? It was the combination in John's life of courage and humility and the willingness to ask Jesus the hard questions when John was questioning. Because John's core conviction was that everyone has a need to have their sin dealt with, even John himself. And this is exactly what Jesus says to John at the end of John's life. John, God has come with a vengeance. And the vengeance is on sin. And he is going to do something about it. Guys, I will tell you, as your pastor, a lot of times my job is to come to you like John in the wilderness and to tell you that you are wicked and sinful and worse than you could possibly believe, that the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity is for optimists. (laughs) You know, it's that we are all bad. But that's not the end of the story because that's not good news. That's bad news. The good news is Jesus, that Jesus came. And he lived the life he should have lived. And he died the death we should have died. And he rose to give us new life. He is the one that cleanses us. He is the one that renews us. He is the one that heals us. He is the one that draws us to God. Our invitation is simply to respond to Jesus as John did. Even in the midst of our joys and our disappointment, we respond with courage because Jesus is the one who pleased the Father. And Jesus gives his righteousness to us as a gift of grace. This is the heart of the gospel. And this is what Jesus is doing. This is what Jesus is helping John, the baptizer, to understand. That you know what? You know what, John? You may be thinking this is what the Messiah came to do. That you want me to crush your enemies? I am telling you, instead, you need to love your enemies. It doesn't mean you give up on your principles. It doesn't mean that you get rid of the scriptures. What it means is you love them like they've never been loved before. Because they're not going to understand love unless you are the one who loves like God has first loved you. This is what he calls us to. This is what you learn from John the baptizer. John is just like us. John got disillusioned with Jesus. I mean, maybe you have a better diet. (laughs) I'd hope so, right? But you learn the things from that. He was disappointed. In the midst of your disappointment, I'll tell you, your God has come in vengeance to save you to save you. This is why we come to communion every week. 
where you take that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his body that was broken for you and I and his blood that was shed for you and me. So we, we take that and we understand that by his death, we have been cleansed of all the garbage in our lives. By his resurrection, we are brought to new life. We surrender all of ourselves to him as our God, Lord, and Savior, and we follow him with all that we are because Jesus is the one that changes and makes us new. The band's going to come up. Uh, as they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some dinkins in the back, and maybe you are somebody that's struggling with disappointment. Uh, maybe you're disappointed with somebody. Maybe you're disappointed with God. Like you think God should have done certain things, and he hasn't done certain things. Well, they'd love to pray with you about that. They'd love to talk to you. Maybe you walk through some of those things because... I tell you, it's, it, it's a very real thing to have this disappointment, you shouldn't, and you shouldn't run or hide from it. You go to the book of Psalms. book of Psalms, are two-thirds of the book are psalms of lament. They're psalms of disappointment and of complaint. The thing God doesn't want from us is our silence. If you're in the midst of disappointment, whatever it is, start to talk to him about it. Talk to other people about it that love Jesus so they can redirect you and help you to understand that, yeah, sometimes our disappointment is a matter of perception because we think God should do what we want God to do. And God's going to do what God knows he needs to do to make us into the people he intends for us to be. So we trust him in all things. Uh, they're offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving simply part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. There's food in the back. Uh, there is no locusts or wild honey, uh, but I believe there's something to eat back there. You can grab something to eat. You can hopefully take that and begin to meet some other people. Take some of the sermon notes. Have a coloring contest, either with your kids or your buddies. If you don't have kids, be like, hey, purple mustache, what do you got? You know, and, and maybe start asking some of those deeper questions inside the sermon notes. Go deeper. Talk through some of those things. Be honest about the places that you have been disappointed. Then hopefully, maybe you have some stories about where you were disappointed, but where God actually brought it all to fruition on the backside. And you get to see, oh, now I totally see what God is doing. And God was doing it all along. Maybe you're stuck in the middle of disappointment. One of the reasons God calls us to live with one another in community is so we can walk through those hard times with each other. So I would encourage you guys to do that. I mean, it's one of the reasons we always try and get you to grab something to eat and meet some other people because we want you living in community with each other. Because our God is good, and he has saved us. And many times we need each other to remind us of that fact, that he is so much better than we can possibly dream or imagine, and that we are good people who learn, in the end, to trust him above all things. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for being a God who allows us to go through hard things in our lives, who allows us to hit disappointments and for calling us to understand that even in the midst of that, you are there and you are walking with us, that you are trustworthy in all the things that we have gone through, all the things that we will go through, that many times your blessing is understanding the gospel that has edges to it, that cuts deep so our hearts bleed and we can hear your spirit better as it blows across our freshly cut hearts. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would give us the understanding that you are a God who has never let us go. That those you have called are in your hand. Nothing can snatch them out. 
And though the clouds come and the rains come, you're a God who walks with us through those things. You carry us, you lift us up, you remind us of who we are in your eyes. Teach us to be a people who surrender and submit all of our wills and all of our lives to your Son. That we would say that we believe. And our hearts and our lives are changed because of the graciousness of you. Have us live and walk in the hope that you provide and that you've never let us go. Amen.